The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we sing a song about a glorious Christ. It is sometimes hard to picture him in glory, and it is hard to, with words and music, accurately express what a glorious Christ looks like, how glorious he is. It is it's sometimes a bit of a disconnect for us. But we declare with voice and in prayer, in song and, and now in more reserved speech, we say, he is glorious and you have sent him and for him we say thank you. And I ask, Lord, that as we open up your word and, and look at him again today, that you would show us something of his glory that you would show us in a way that resonates with us, that, that, that moves beyond mere intellectual understanding. We can't skip that, but we want to go beyond that so that we, we know facts and truth, but then are moved by what is factual and true. And so therefore, see his glory. We can communicate well enough in English to, to get facts across and, and get facts in, but we can't see unless you open our eyes. And so we ask you, Father, would you commission the Spirit to show us the Son? Show us him in some sweet mercy and some sweet grace today and in some power today. We make this passage clear to us. Will you, will you clear from, from the room, from our minds, distraction, whether it be uh, something tangible like noise and temperature and, and health and sickness and, or something spiritual, whether it be sin that weighs down on us or, or spiritual attack that would seek to keep Christ hidden. We have an enemy, Lord, who knows that to see Jesus is good for us and he doesn't want that so will you clear away all distractions spirit of God and will you allow us to hear you to hear you speak to us and will you then conform us more to Jesus and by that change us make us different show us Christ and make us different so have your way with this word and with us we are a sinful people Will you forgive us? And will you grow us in holiness, in likeness of Jesus? We're thankful that you're committed to that. So we ask you to do it. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 22, where we've been looking at the final evening of Jesus' life before the cross. It's the evening of the Passover feast, and Jesus uses that meal and the ancient 
act of God's gracious deliverance that it recalls and celebrates, a great Passover back in Egypt long, long ago. He used that meal and that event to explain his mission, which is about to be completed very shortly. He's come to be the great Passover lamb sent by God so that God's wrath could pass over people. It would pass over all who trust in this lamb's blood. It would, it would pass the wrath of God over, over people and onto Jesus instead. That's what Jesus has come to do, and that's about to happen right soon here. Jesus' sacrificial death is imminent. He's about to be rejected by the world as the scriptures predicted. Even the apostle Peter will temporarily deny him while Judas, one of the twelve, will hypocritically betray him. Jesus told them, us, all of this while he taught there on that last evening. And then they went out of the city, out to the Mount of Olives, where he prayed, and then, like he said, was arrested. That's what we looked at last week. Jesus agonized in prayer because he's looking at what it means to, to bear the wrath of God, and as a man, it is agonizing to consider that, and so he wants there to be some other way. But he more wants God's way, so that's where he ends up. Not my will, but yours be done. If there's another way for your wrath to be passed over, your people, let that be, but not my way, but your way. And then Judas and the crowd comes, revealing God's way. And so Jesus humbly, meekly surrendered to it, all the while being totally in control of it. He sees the hypocrisy in Judas and in the leaders. He sees Judas betraying him with a kiss of friendship. He sees the leaders come to arrest him secretly at night when no one will see. He points it out and calls them on it, but he didn't flee from it and didn't even stop it. In fact, he, tries to, he stops those who try to stop it. He stayed the hand of, of the one with the sword, striking the ear off. Yeah, and then he healed the ear. He's, he's in total control of this whole situation, not to protect himself, but to accomplish redemption. Seen pictured in how he heals the, the wounded ear, but the reason he's here is to assure that he gets arrested and gets to the cross for the redemption of people. Yeah, that's what he's using his authority for, to redeem He's running his own arrest in this way to accomplish redemption. Which brings us to our passage today. After arrest comes trial. And Jesus is still in control of that situation too. Let me read the passage. It's, it's a lengthy one. It's the whole rest of the chapter. And I'm going to pass back through it to clarify just a couple of details before then pulling out two observations. So this is Luke chapter 22. Verse 54, all the way through the end of the chapter. I'll read it and then point out a couple things. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. 
And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him. He's, he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Luke 22. This is Luke's version, and as usual, Luke presents a rather streamlined retelling of the events. If you compare this to the other Gospels, you notice there are a bunch of details in, in other Gospels that Luke leaves out because he just wants to focus us in on the main issues at hand. But Maybe because we've all read the other accounts, a few words about the big picture are perhaps in order. The passage begins with Jesus being arrested and led back into the city to the house of the high priest. At this time, there were two men who were sometimes called high priest. One named Annas, who was the former high priest and father-in-law to the current one, Caiaphas. Sometimes that's a bit confusing to us. We read it in different places and we wonder what's going on. But it's, it's not that different, really, from how we use the title president to refer to Trump and Obama and Clinton and both Bushes and Jimmy Carter. We know who we mean based on the context. We know there's only one actual president right now, but that's how we call them all. They, under, they understood they carried on in the same way. They knew who they were talking about in the context, even if it's a bit confusing to us. So there are two high priests... And they might have lived near each other, and because they were related, they may even have lived in the same large house, in different wings of the same large house, with a courtyard in the middle where some of these events happen. We don't exactly know the details. But when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the high priest's house and was first questioned by Annas, relatively quickly it seems, and then was led to Caiaphas, the presiding high priest, for a more vigorous examination. This happened all throughout the, the night into the early, early hours, the dark hours of the morning. And neither one of those trials are here in Luke. What we get in Luke is only how somehow Jesus and Peter made eye contact, verse 61. We get how he was treated in the night during verses 63 to 65. And then our trial in verse 66 and following is really what we call the third quasi-trial. It happened in the early morning on Friday, 
and it had to be in the morning for legal reasons, such as they are. Throughout this whole event, the leadership is playing fast and loose with all sorts of legalities, but this much they hold to. The whole assembly cannot gather at night to render a binding verdict. They already know what verdict they're going to deliver. They knew it before they arrested him. They've established in the main trial at night before Caiaphas, which isn't recorded in Luke, they established with all kinds of various witnesses talking about different kinds of things, they established their verdict, but now here in the morning with everybody assembled, they cut to the chase to get the important points on record, so to speak. Enough for everyone to make a formal decision. And that's what Luke presents to us very briefly here at the end. But before Jesus' trial, we get to look in on some of Peter's. And that takes us to the first observation. Here's the first observation. It's about Jesus. Jesus has always seen our shameful failings and dealt with them himself. Jesus has always seen our shameful failings and dealt with them himself. We come into our passage for today with a perspective on Peter that's probably close to the perspective that Peter himself had. He is impulsive, confident, brave, even bold, Certainly no wilting flower. We see that all throughout the Gospels, all throughout Luke, but we've seen it even in this very chapter. At the Passover meal, after Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan is coming for all the disciples, you in particular. After he said that, Peter then said, I'm ready. I am ready to go with you to prison and even to death. Let's do this, Jesus. Satan's coming? Fine. Let's go. Words that he backs up with action in the garden. John tells us what Luke omits here. The guy with the sword in the garden is Peter. Swinging the sword, cutting off the servant's ear, ready to fight no matter the odds. Remember, they have two swords and it's an armed crowd. Let's go, says Peter. And, end of verse 54, Peter trailed them to the high priest's house and then positioned himself in the courtyard right among the people who had just been the crowd that arrested Jesus that he attacked. It's dark, sure. Maybe he thinks like he can be hidden. It's not too dark to be hidden, as we discover. But everybody else thought it was a really good idea to avoid that place. And Peter follows them right into the middle and sits down right among them. He is, he is as we've thought of him, and probably as he thought of himself, he is, he is confident, he is committed, brave, which is why this passage comes as such a sudden surprise to us and probably to him. He came into the courtyard of the high priest's house, sat down at the fire with a group, and verse 56 was identified by a servant girl, someone powerless 
and totally insignificant. A servant girl. She looks at him. Wait. This man also was with Jesus. Woman, which is not an insult. It's just a, a generic way of addressing a female stranger. Woman, I don't know him. A strong denial of any connection at all to Jesus. It's like it's a par- it's a statement often used when you're like writing somebody out of your will. I don't know him. Well, a little later, someone else, still looking, still kind of curious, but you are one of them, man. I am not. I'm not a follower of his. I'm. I don't know him, and I'm not a follower of his. And then a little bit later, finally an hour or so, they're, they're, they're still happy. Certainly, you're a Galilean. For crying out loud, you're a Galilean. You have to be one of his people. I have, no, I have no idea why you guys keep badgering about this. I have no connection to them whatsoever at all. I have no idea what you're talking about. Why do you keep bringing this up? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know him. I'm not one of his followers. And frankly, I'm puzzled about the whole conversation's about. Says Peter. It's an odd, increasing distancing of himself from Jesus, the one who was ready to go, ready to go with him to prison and even death. Now, 12 hours later, has the opportunity to do that. Doesn't want anything to do with it. Doesn't know anything about it. Completely ignorant. His faith is crumbling right before our eyes. He's failing here in this moment of trial, and he doesn't see it yet. He doesn't see what's going on yet. Everything's kind of racing downhill, and then the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Maybe Jesus was being held somewhere where there was a line of sight to where Peter was, or maybe he was being led in transition from one place to another. But however it worked out, in the providence of God, and isn't the providence of God fascinating here? However it worked out, I have no idea what you are talking about, the rooster crows, and Jesus catches his eye. Ooh. Bing, bing, bing. Immediately, it says. And a compelling word is used here. Jesus looked upon him, searchingly, knowingly looked at him. He'd known what was going on all along, and he sees right into Peter's heart. And then Peter came awake, and he realized what was going on all along too. He remembered verses 31 to 34 from earlier, and Satan's coming for you, and though you don't think so, I mean, Peter at one point was so bold as to say, these other ones may have banned you, but not me. You don't think so, Peter. But you're going to turn. So when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Ah, surely not me. I, I tell you, before the rooster crows three times, you would deny me. Peter, what just happened? Peter. I denied you and I turned away. I did that. 
verse 62, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter is not weeping just because Jesus is on trial. And he's not weeping just because he denied Jesus. Just because he's done something he shouldn't have done or something's going on that shouldn't have been done. It put emphasis in that sentence a little bit differently. He's weeping because he denied Jesus. He's ashamed of himself and what he has done. Both what he has done and that he did it. There's a realization here that has hit him in his denial. That which he was sure wasn't him, in fact, is him. That which he knew he would never do, he just did. And he's broken over that, self-embittered over that, ashamed over that. We're familiar with this because we've been there. An awareness of what now can't be denied but which severely disappoints us as we become acquainted with ourselves, with our true, fallen, weak selves. Something that is surprising to us or disappointing that is still us. We thought that was our past and here it is in the present again. I thought I was over that or past that or I thought I would never be that or do that. And there it is. It's embarrassing and humiliating and disappointing and all the more so when we realize that someone else has already always been seeing it in us. Disappointing when we, we think we were past it or disappointing when we see the consequences that we have inflicted on someone else in our weakness and in our sin. We let someone down that we shouldn't have and we feel ashamed that is all what Peter realizes in this moment as Peter meets Peter. And as Peter meets Jesus in a different way. Because really, this is about Jesus, ultimately. It's about Peter, and there's a whole bunch about Peter, Peter's activities there. It's about Peter, and it is, it is here because we are to see that's human, that's me. It, it is about me, but it's not ultimately, finally about me or Peter. It's about Jesus. It's about Peter failing, but about how Jesus doesn't let go of him or of us who are like him. Jesus knows Peter's true nature. He knows our true selves, shameful and disappointing though it may be for us to meet ourselves. Jesus has always known the real you. Always. 
He knew what was going on with Peter. He, he knew it before it happened. And he's already committed himself. This is, this is the sweet thing about this. He has already committed himself to, in his controlling power and authority, redeeming that you. That one. This true version of you. He is sovereign for the redemption of the actual person you are. If you, if you get into this and think into this, there is something glorious here. So in, engage with this. He told Peter that he knew it was coming. Remember? Peter now suddenly remembers. Satan is asked to sift you. I know what that means. You don't really, but I know what that means, and I know who you are. You're a mere man. You are, in fact, a genuine believer, but you are a human believer, and you will fall. You will deny me, but I am engaged for you, and the Father will hear my prayer, and he will sustain you. He will keep you. He will preserve you in your faith when you turn back. I know all of this, and I'm praying for you now. You don't know any of it yet, but I do. And I'm engaged to redeem you already. That's what he says to Peter. Peter doesn't get all that, though. Peter has a wrong view of himself. So he goes on to push back. I'm not going to do that. He doesn't doesn't really know himself. We tend also to have a wrong view of ourselves. We we are certain, we, we are sure, we agree, yes, we are sinners. We agree with that. We tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And, and if you need any evidence of that, any proof of that, how do you react when people poke you and point out what you've done wrong and point out your shortcomings and call you on sin? You bristle at it, right? I mean, you, we acknowledge, if, you, you can, if I can express it like this, we acknowledge that we are, are kind of like first grade, you know, grade one, first degree sinners, and maybe a little bit of second degree sinners. But when somebody says, you are a second degree sinner, I think maybe a third degree sinner, whoa, 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 whoa. We bristle at that. We don't, we don't like to hear that. Because really, we don't, we don't buy it. We tend to think a little more highly of ourselves, but to paraphrase, and I'm paraphrasing here, I, Christian writer and counselor paraphrasing what he said, the gospel is that you are far worse off than you realize. You think you're a a first degree, maybe a second degree sinner. The reality is you are a third, fourth, fifth, sixth degree sinner. How is that gospel? How's that good news? You're far worse off than you realize, but Jesus is a far better Savior than you realize. Because he has always known the depth of your sin. He has always seen who you really are, has always completely and accurately understood that fifth-degree sinner doesn't start to touch it yet. And he understands 
that even when we see some, some greater degree of our sin, some greater degree of, of our weakness and are ashamed of it, that half of that, at least half of that shame is actually still sin. Because I thought I was better than that. I thought I was better than that. And what I'm embarrassed about is not that I did it, but that I did it. He understands that too. Man, Steve, you're bringing on all this, you're a sinner, you're a, you're a worse sinner than you realize. Do you realize why I'm saying that? Please track with this. Do you realize why I'm saying this? It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Peter's crushed in the moment. I did what? Oh, ah, oh. The point of the whole story is that Jesus saw it beforehand and is there bound up in the courtyard because of it, on purpose. Because that, Peter, that's the you that I'm saving. Look back to the story again. When you, when you, hear, when you hear me or when you face, when you, when you feel the shame of the real you, and you get that picture of Jesus locking eyes on you. How is he looking at you? How do you think he's looking at you? How do you think he looked at Peter? Like that? I told you so. There you go again. You too? Is that how he looked at him? Is that how you think he looks at you? Is that, how, is that what you feel when somebody pokes at you or when, when I even say you're a fourth or fifth degree sinner or worse? Is that, is that how you feel it? When his eye falls on you, when you're faced with yourself, disgust, disdain, Exasperation? What is it? Well, I think we need to bring the gospel into this moment and rethink that. The phrase I would put on it is maybe, what's in Jesus' eye? Costly love. Maybe sacrificial love. Costly, sacrificial, costly, because... In that moment, what you're, what you're feeling, what you're seeing, what, what you're engaging with him over is the reason that he is about to be shamed. It's not immaterial. It's not nothing. It's the reason that he is about to be called a transgressor and accused of sin and pronounced worthy of death, not just by men, but by heaven itself. So it's serious. It's costly. But it, ha it must be, uh, it must be costly love, sacrificial love, because in those eyes also is a, de a determination I'm here to go through this for that because I want you. I want God's wrath removed off of you. 
Now, we're dealing with now some, some new awareness on your part of what that means, but I want you. I want the Father's honor in your life. I want you redeemed and made whole and new and right. And so, by my own will and by my own power, I'm standing here. I'm not captured by them. I surrendered to them. For this, in costly love. He is a willing sacrifice in charge of all of this, every single bit of it, willingly embracing it, not begrudging, not fed up with it. It is... It is very important that we think all the way through this first point here that Jesus has always known, has always known, has always seen all of your failings. Even the ones that haven't happened yet. The things you would be ashamed of to to broadcast things you'll be crushed by to find out that was actually in you. He's always seen that. And that's what he's committed himself to redeem. That you. Here is a wider, longer, higher, deeper sacrificial love maybe than you've known before. It is a glorious thing to have a Savior from first degree sin. It is a double glorious thing to have a Savior from And that's who he is. He is never shocked, appalled, surprised when we discover ourselves. When we're grieved, we did that again. He just says, Yeah. Come, come. That should be freedom to you that should be freedom to you from the burden of shame and from the compensating that we usually engage with because what we do when we see that shame what we we do is we we try to hide because we got to like put that away somewhere we pretend this breeds hypocrisy in us and burdensome work 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 hiding and covering and hiding and covering, all the while getting eaten up inside. There is great relief from that because what we say is, is, yeah, that's me. Here, Jesus. And he says, yeah, I've dealt with that myself. Come. This is good news. This is good news. Jesus has always known the fullness, the whole extent of our failings and has dealt with them himself in costly love. He redeems us from shame and so will embrace shame in our place. And that brings us to the next point. Despite the world's judgment and rejection, the true judge reigns. 
Despite the world's judgment and rejection, the true judge reigns. You know, so I'm talking about judge reigning. Sometimes in our modern Western American minds, we think of judges only as sitting on benches. But in biblical times, the judge sits on a throne. He's, he's ruling in all ways, rendering legal verdicts, but also just rendering verdict on all of life. He, he's reigning. This is the judge who is king, and he reigns. Verses 63 to 65 show us some of what the rejection of Jesus can look like, and it's ugly. Mocking and physically beating him and playing a childish game with him, tormenting him as they blindfold him and hit him and then challenge him and blaspheme him. Very end of 65 which is an interesting little word dropped in there by Luke to remind us of something. You can mock and beat and scorn and torment people, but blaspheme is a word we use with God. Luke's just dropping something in here to remind us who this one is. They have no idea. They don't realize what they're doing or with whom they are dealing Luke wants to remind us, and Jesus is about to tell them. Verses 66 to 71 gives us this summary trial. The authorities are gathered, and now, so for the record, they question him. If you are the Christ, tell us. This is the charge they need to establish to get him in front of the Roman rulers. Pilate would see these kinds of cases in the morning, so they've, they've got to get this done by morning, and they're on a time clock, so they ask him, you know, just, if you're the Christ, tell us. We want to get you on record claiming to be the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel. That's what will trigger Rome's wrath. They'll see you as a rival king, contrary to Roman rule, contrary to Caesar. So, are you or not? Tell us. And Jesus' answer is perfect in what it accomplishes. He's on trial, but listen to his control here. But he said to them, am I the Christ? Well, if I tell you, you will not believe. So we've been down this road. I've been telling you for the whole book of Luke. I've been saying it. I've been showing it. I mean, the blind see, the lame walk. The dead live. I've been saying it, and they know he's been saying it, which is why they think they can get him to say it again. (laughs) If I tell you, you won't believe, because you are different than Peter, wavering in fear. They are hard-hearted resistant. We know, but we don't want to know. We will not consider that. We're not going to consider the evidence. So if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer, because we've done that too. Remember, he asked them to consider, what what about John the Baptist? When John the Baptist identified me and said, I'm the one whose sandals he's not worthy to untie, what what about John's testimony? Remember we asked, we talked about that, and what was your answer? No comment. So if I tell you, you won't believe, and if I ask you, you won't answer. So what's Jesus saying? This is all sham. He's on trial, but he's judging them. This is a sham because of where your hearts are and how you're actually engaging with the evidence, with the questions, with the testimony. 
You are unwilling and uninterested to consider the facts. That's who you are, and that's how you are. He confronts them in their sin. And then, verse 69, but I'm going to give you what you want anyway. I'm going to give you what you need anyway. Listen. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He called himself the Son of Man again, making clear connection to the Messiah of the Old Testament, like in Daniel 7. The Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and is given dominion over all. We looked at this before. So in effect, he says, am I the Christ? Yes, I am. And then he says so much more. And from now on, up till now, it has not been this way, but from now on, in the immediate future, going forward, I'm going to take a seat somewhere, shocking, at the right hand of the power of God, which perks up their ears immediately. This is grounds for condemnation in the eyes of the Jewish leadership, not Rome. See, the leaders here have a dilemma that Jesus solves for them. They have a dilemma in that what Rome cares about, they don't. Someone claiming to be a rival king to Rome is what Israel actually wants. So they couldn't justify to the crowds having him killed for that. The crowds would lynch them. So they've been afraid of this whole time. But blasphemy, that's another issue. All Israel would be highly offended by that, but of course Rome doesn't care about that at all. So they, they need, really, they've they got to come out of this somehow with two different incriminating statements, and Jesus volunteers both of them in one sentence. I will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's not just quoting Daniel, that's applying it to himself, bringing up the, the same conundrum from Psalm 110 that he had brought up with them before. Remember David said to his, to his uh, David said to the Messiah, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Remember he'd asked him about that? He's quoting that, he's, he's bringing that all to the, the table again here. They have not resolved that, but what he's clearly doing in front of them is saying, I, you think I'm a mere man, I'm going to sit right beside Yahweh. Which is blasphemous two ways. You make yourself equal to God and you drag God down to the human level. In the trial at night, the high priest tore his robe at this point. I can't believe he just said that. He pulls God down to his level and pulls himself up to God's level and says, I'm going to sit. There's nobody in heaven sitting but God. And I'm going to sit on the throne of power and reign. I'm the Lord and I will reign from the throne. Are you the son of God then? They heard his claim and his response. You say that I am. It's a curious avoidance. It kind of puts the, the onus back on them. It's not a denial. You'd expect somebody 
raises that kind of a question, you'd expect Jesus to say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying I'm equal with God. That'd be blasphemous. But he doesn't say that. He just says, some say. You didn't deny it then. You're, you're entertaining the idea. What more do we need? Verse 71, we've heard the testimony from his own lips. We're justified in killing him for blasphemy, and we can get him killed by Rome for rebellion. The prosecution rests. But it never considers the facts. So that's, that's all. That's the account of the trial. And, it, and in some sense, it would be easy for us to say, that's, you know, that's the, the tracing through of, of a trial that, you know, so? What does that mean? I get that that's how Jesus gets tried and condemned and goes to the cross, but what does this mean? Well, what we need to consider here in this passage is the difference between what seems to be the case and what is the case. This is what connects to us here. <clears throat> Jesus stands there, bound up, mocked, beaten, manhandled and used for public amusement. And then he's questioned and deliberated over again and again and again, tried and then finally condemned, and it looks to all the world like he is tame, under the control of man, subject to the whims of mortals. He's on trial. He's answering to us, and we will decide what we think of him and what we do with him. So it seems. So it seems to everyone in that moment. So it seems to the council and to the soldiers and to the crowd outside and to Peter. Jesus is bound, and Jesus is being evaluated, and Jesus is being judged, and to follow him is now highly problematic. I don't even know him. That's what it seems like to everybody with eyes to see. But in reality, what are you talking about reality? That, that is reality. No, it isn't. Of course it is. That's reality. It's made out of matter. It's solid. It's hard. This, this is reality. But there's another reality, not just parallel to, above this reality. And in reality, the shoe is on the other foot. As they mock, they blaspheme. And this is so because the one they sit in judgment over is in fact the judge over all of the earth. And he is headed to, and at this point now is seated at, has arrived at and is seated on the throne of all power and authority in heaven reigning right now. That's reality. I can't see that. True. But can you see it? You must see it. 
And God, open our eyes and help us to see the reality that is above this reality. This is what we have to think about and to know and to reckon with and trust in right now. We can look at the trial and we see Jesus controlling it, ironically making sure that he gets convicted. We see this, we reckon that, but we don't see it today. May God open your eyes and enable you to see This means that Jesus sits on the throne and reigns over every aspect of every moment for every person's life in every state and continent on the the globe. Everywhere. From now on, you will see me. Can you see him? You will see me seated at the right hand of power. And in heaven right now, the voice of heaven says, I have enthroned my son on Zion, and the nations may rage against him. And I just laugh because it's ridiculous. This one reigns. It may seem that still the world stands in judgment over him and sizes him up and mocks him as foolish and attacks him as worthy of being destroyed, the world acting as judge over Jesus and over us as people. We see that, we look at that, and if our eyes focus there on what is seen, we will shrink back in our flesh like Peter and our faith will begin to wilt. But what God has committed himself to do, what Jesus has committed himself to do as he prays for us in our trials is to cry out to the Father, Father, by your Spirit, will you open their eyes and enable them to see me, the glorious Christ enthroned in heaven and reigning. Indeed, I am letting darkness have its hour. Yes. But he holds the leash in his hand and will yank it when he chooses. There is a certain moment coming when Christ will bring all of the world to heal under his authority. Actively expressed healing, obedience to, submission to his authority. He determines when that happens. He determines how that happens in the small senses in each of our daily lives and in the big sense when he returns. We have to see this. It is the, fru- it is, it is the root. It, it's the, feed, the food that feeds our faith. To see a glorious Christ who reigns. And who reigns doing what? Who reigns having redeemed, working to redeem, and finally to redeem the real you in all of your weakness, in all of your failings, in all of your faults. Brothers and sisters, will you... May God work in you, will you? Will you lift up your eyes and see the throne? Not just the courtroom of the earth, but to see the courtroom of heaven and to realize the one who is now here bound as a criminal is actually enthroned there as the king. And you belong to him. You ain't got nothing to worry about. Really? What do you mean nothing worth? This is reality. Peter's going to get crucified hanging upside down. Yeah. All the rest of the disciples are too. One way or another, they're all going. The world is hostile. Indeed, the world rejects us. He told us that. 
But there's a life here that's free. And you can live in a moment of realizing, I don't actually have anything to worry about because the one who is for me, the real me, reigns. This is good news. And it's, it's good news. It's, it's good news for you right now if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, it's good news for you too because what it says is, is he's still about the work of redemption. He's still calling, come and be freed from shame. Come and find a savior. Come and find a deliverer. Come and find a shield against the world all around you. That can be yours too if you come. So come. Well, this isn't just about like an us versus them. Like you can't ever come in. You can come. You can come. You can be one of his. That's his call to you right now. Come. But we need to be really clear about this. It's an offer you can't refuse. To quote one of the greatest movies of all time. It's an offer you can't refuse. It's a glorious offer. But do not play with it like all of those who judge Jesus play with it. Yeah, we heard you, you say this. We, we see the evidence. Never mind that. I've already decided what I think. Oh, no. That's fatal. In the most serious, most real sense, that is fatal. When the real you shows up, when the covers are stripped back and you see who you really are before a holy God and see him for who he really is, if there is no Savior there for you, there is only trouble of an eternal magnitude. Here is a Jesus who is almighty, who controls all of destiny, and who uses that might to assure redemption even of people like Peter and like us. This is one worth trusting. One worth leaning on, banking on the, the fact that he upholds us and sustains us and will carry us home. Towards that end, he reigns, and for that, we can trust him. Let me pray. There is a great freedom, Father, in the release. <laughs> the way I think of it is, is the freedom to be honest with myself about who I really am and to see you standing there still. You don't glibly dismiss who we really are but you love us through it and for that fallen one you came in grace and in mercy to save there is a great freedom in walking through that in the moments of shame and disappointment so father will you take your people here 
And will you invite those who are not yet your people, will you invite them to this hope? And those who are yours, will you take them through this hope and cause them to walk through it? To let go of our failings and our weaknesses before you and experience your freeing, saving grace. Walk your people through that, please, Lord. And in that, assure us of the fact that you are at work reigning over all the earth and over our lives. That we'll never sin ourselves out of your presence. We'll never sin ourselves out from underneath of your cover. If you are God and you are for us. Give us eyes to see you seated and reigning. To see you as having come into the throne room and taken your seat the glorious Christ, there to redeem us, your people, all the way to home. Thank you. Work this into us and build your church, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.